Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. Thank you, Richard, for reading that for us. You know, I've never been much of one for Christian conferences and Christian gatherings, that groupy type of thing. It's just never really been my thing. Now, in my earlier years, I went to lots of those as a young pastor, and I often found much good in them, and I'm grateful for the insight and the encouragement that I received from these conferences for pastors. But often as not, I left them feeling more confused and frustrated than when I started. Some of you have had that experience. You go to a convention of some sort regarding your profession, and you get lots of great ideas, and you go back, and you're a little discouraged as well. Well, that would happen to me. Lots of great ideas, many visionary speeches, many practical tools, but where do I begin, and how does this connect to my local church situation? But it was more than that. Somehow, though, I could never quite put my finger on it. There was something about this whole experience of gathering these pastors together for a large group uh, a seminar and experience on how to get your church to be as good as everybody else's church, that sort of thing. There was something about that experience which quite felt a little unsettling to me. I didn't want to be critical then, and I don't want to be critical now, but while there is much good in gathering church leaders together for inspiration and instruction and instruction on church leadership, I began to wonder, to what degree does this phenomenon contribute to the very things that I always find, already find and found unsettling about the church in America? Now, you may remember last week, if you were here, I talked about this. I talked that often we think of church as simply a place that I attend. We don't want to simply be a place 
that you attend. There's much more to the church than that, but that's a common understanding of the church. The em- so when you, when you have a church as a place that you attend, the emphasis invariably becomes on the three great B's of the church. You remember them, don't you? Bodies and buildings and bucks, getting lots of bodies, building lots of buildings, raising lots of bucks, and lots of things go around that. These are the things which, whether we like to admit it or not, tend to define success or failure for most American churches and their pastors. How many people come to church? What is the annual budget? Tell me about your facility, you know. Um, and you know, so often the church, you go to a church, a lot of churches, the bulletin will have a picture of the church, right? You go to the website, a picture of the church building. Is that what it's all about? Rarely, if ever, did I go to a concert where the leaders of the ch- where the leaders of small churches were featured. Like, look at this guy; he's got a church of forty-five people. Let's hear what he has to say. That doesn't happen at these kinds of places. It's like when you go to your your. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, I don't know. I'm out. I'm off. I think everything's off. Test, test. Test. Well, I can speak pretty loud, but I will. I, you guys work on that. If you get it going, you let me know. I'll keep talking to get this is on. If it comes on, great. Okay. We're, oh, boy. <laughs> I don't know where the message was in that from God or someone else, but... Uh, Rarely have I ever been to a conference where they feature the little guy, the the small church, the No, we don't want church to simply be a place. Can you hear me okay back there? Simply be a place that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that we attend. And you remember last week that I also said a lot of people look at church as a product that I consume. A product that I consume. Now, in my view, American churches have often been influenced more by capitalism than by the gospel. We compete with one another to provide the best services so that people will, will consume our product. Church as a product that I promote so that people can consume it. We've become a consumer-oriented church culture as a response to our consumer-driven society. Is this the way God intended it to be? No, I don't think so at all. Without intending to, we are in danger of, of, of promoting uh, Jesus simply as one more commodity to consume. Church becomes a vending machine promoting Jesus as, as our product. And even worse, I think, are you still with me? And even worse, I think, we tend to create a consumer mentality about churches. We teach both our members and guests. It's all about you. It's all about you. Well, as you saw last week, we're not trying to do that. We're not trying to be that. But these conferences often are overflowing with ideas for every facet of church life. From programming for every age group to how to make sure people feel welcome from the moment they enter the parking lot. We have parking lot attendants, right, to make sure that everybody knows how to, how to come in and what everything's all, uh, all about. No, I, again, I do not wish to be critical towards these conferences. I don't mean so at all because I have received much help from them. And I know they inspire and encourage many churches and church. And I know they inspire many. Thank you, Brian. Uh, whoever you are. Kevin. 
Really appreciate Kevin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah we, we, we know everybody's name in this church, don't we? <laughs> There's been many... <laughs> this is a crazy day, isn't it? There are many great things in these conferences. I'm not meaning to demean or diminish any of that. But I'm putting my idea on a cultural phenomenon. We create this idea. Church is a place I go to. Or church is a product I consume. And I believe the 21st century is tired of that. People are not interested. Now, we are the older people. But our children don't care about the commodification of church. They just don't. They want to know, is God there? Can I meet him? Will he help me? I know there's not three steps to a perfect life. I know that my life is messy and broken. But can God help me in the middle of my mess? You see, this is where people really are. They understand the falsity of this promotion of creating a a hip, going, great thing where if you just come on in, your life will be great and so will you. You see? No. Um, well, anyway, do we, do, I, I fear that we, uh, again, like I said, I do not wish to be critical of these conferences because I have received much help from them. And I know they inspire many churches and church leaders, but I wonder if the law of unintended consequences is in effect. Do we unwittingly promote church as an institution or church as a vending machine by the very nature of these events? Sometimes I'm convinced we do. So I generally have stayed away. I'm kind of out of the mainstream in the church Christian subculture. But this week, I received a last-minute invitation to attend one of these conferences. Well, I couldn't attend the whole thing due to the commitments that I had. I was able to go about half of it, go to about half of it. It was a video conference which originated from a church in the Midwest. That tells you something already. You know, you're seeing things all on the screen. You're 2,000 miles away. Um, a video conference from a church um, in the Midwest, a church for which I have the utmost respect. I was grateful to go, and I will say I found it very inspiring. Now, the final speaker of this event was a well-known pastor who lives in the South. I had never heard him speak, but I had known about him and was fascinated with his theme. For as I listened to him speak, it appeared to me that this guy had been reading my notes from last Sunday's sermon. How did he get my sermon? That was on Sunday, and he came on Friday night as the final keynote speaker of this whole event, and he began to talk about, I will build my ecclesia. That's exactly what he said. And I want to say, you go. Yeah, let's do that. I will build my church, not the word church, but the church, the word gathering, my assembly. He talked about uh, the things that I shared with you last week, and I was really proud to know that this guy listens to me preach because they never put me, no, that's not true, of course. Actually, what I said to you last week, and I forget, forgive me for those of you who weren't here, is the church is not a product, excuse me, not a place that I attend. It's not a product that I consume. It's a people who are called. Church is about people called by God, gathered by him, and sent with hope into the world. He spoke about some of the, he talked about the New Testament word for the church, ecclesia. He even used the Bible word ecclesia many times in his talk. He mentioned that it was a word which should have been translated congregation or assembly, not church. He spoke about the movement which Jesus inaugurated back in the first century and the way in which Jesus wants to propel still his movement into the 21st century. It was inspiring and encouraging to hear him say some of the stuff uh, which, which seems to me to be foundational to our understanding of the church. 
um, uh, not as a place I attend, not as a product I consume, but rather, as we talked about last week, as a people who are called. Church, not as you may recall, as an institution or a vending machine, but church as a movement. That's what we're trying to develop here. In fact, the parallel was so great that afterward, the friend who had invited me to go to the conference came to me and said, it was nice to hear him talking about your church, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he said it tongue in cheek, and it was. So, of course, as I left, I bought the guy's book. I had to, right? What am I going to do? I had to buy the, buy, got the, bought the guy's book. And I found that, in fact, there is a whole chapter in his book on the very subject of his talk. Here is a paragraph from his book. Speaking of Jesus' use of the word ecclesia in his comments to Peter, outside Caesarea Philippi, he wrote this. Something, something else of extraordinary significance was communicated during this exchange. Something that in the English translation of the Bible misses. Specifically, the meaning of the term translated church. As you may know, the Greek term translated church throughout the New Testament is ekklesia. What you may not know is that it was not a religious term. It could refer to citizens called to gather for civic purposes. It could refer to soldiers called to gather for military purposes. And ekklesia was simply a gathering or an assembly of people called out for a specific purpose. Ekklesia never referred to a specific place only a specific gathering. So if you don't believe it from me, believe it from a successful preacher, right? <laughs> this, as you can see, is precisely the theme we spoke about last week and which we're exploring during this month as we sort of think about what we're about as a church. Uh, for it was not only a cowboy preacher speaking of it, a church in a church with only a few dozen bodies, no building and no bucks. It wasn't just that old cowboy preacher a week ago. It was a guy who, according to the flyleaf of his best-selling book, is the founder of a church where more than 33,000 people attend one of their seven campus churches. It was said not only by a part-time preacher whose Sunday messages are downloaded by a handful of people every week if they do happen to get posted, but rather, as it says in the flyleaf of this book, it was said by a guy whose messages are, according to the, are, are, are downloaded by over a million people every month. You can see the sarcasm in what I'm saying. We tend to look for success. Except there's one thing that bothered me both about his talk and to so far about his book. One thing that continues to bother me. I'm reading his book, and I'm sure it's very good, but I'm afraid that it still might make an unhealthy contribution to the problems of the church as a place and the church as a product. I hope I'm wrong. For one thing concerns me, it is well and good to speak of the church as a people who are called, but it begs an important question. By whom are we called? To what are we called? And how do we respond to that call? Just to say that we're called, well, by what are we called? To whom are we called? For what are we called? If we don't get that right, it doesn't make any difference what we call ourselves because we can fall back into Bad habits. And so this morning, and we don't have a lot of time, I know, but so this morning, I want us to take a look at this idea. What does it mean to be called to faith in the gospel of Christ? What does it mean to be called to faith? There are, th there are three critical questions we're going to ask. By whom are we called? What is the essence of our calling? And thirdly, how do we respond to our calling? So let's look at that here for a moment. First of all, by whom are we called? And we've used as our text here the great 
introduction to the book of Romans. I hope you have, and I hope you brought your own Bibles and your own little reading lamp if you don't have one, so that you can actually see what says in the Scripture when you come to church. Paul writes this book as a way of affirming the gospel of Christ. Richard read it eloquently for you before. Notice what he says. Well, I'd like to just highlight a few sections of Paul, a servant, verse, first verse, of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David. We see already the word called and gospel. Our statement is we're called to faith in the gospel of Christ. Skipping down to verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So it's not just the apostle Paul, like the professionals who get called. It's to everybody who's a follower of Christ. We're all called, all right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith, there's that other word, is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve in the spirit of the gospel of his Son without ceasing. I mention you always in my prayers. So already we've seen the three critical words of the first portion of our statement. We're called to faith in the gospel of Christ. We're called to faith in the gospel of Christ. And that's why he says in the... In the uh, uh, in, in the 16th verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to sal- for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the just shall, the righteous rather, shall live by faith. So what does it mean to be called to faith in the gospel of Christ? Three questions. By whom are we called? That's the first one. By whom are we called? And it's clear we are called by God. It starts because God starts first. The disciples didn't just themselves decide, you know, I'm going to start following Jesus. No, they were called by Jesus. Abraham didn't just decide one day, you know, I'm going to start following God. No, he was called by God. Moses didn't just start one day by the bush in the, as a shepherd in Midian and say, I'm going to go lead my people. No, he was called by God. And you didn't think about God before he first thought about you. We didn't think about this church before he first thought about us. We are called by God. It's all about God. I can't take time, but oh, these first few verses, you see it's so much all about God. Paul, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, notice the reference, the the, um, importance of God, or he or him, the pronouns there, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was descended from death according to, to the flesh and now declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's all about God. We, by whom are we called? We are called by God. Oh, it's so easy to, it's so easy to forget that. We get kind of caught up in our own little world thing. How can I figure this thing out? You forget before you ever thought about it, God. He was calling you. He was calling you. You're responding to God. I need to leave that point quickly and go secondly to the second one. What is the essence? 
What is the essence of our calling? What is the essence? We're called. Okay, we're called. What are we called to? We're called by the gospel of, we're called to faith in the gospel of Christ. We are called to the gospel. Now, let's camp on this word gospel for a moment because most of us don't have a clue what the gospel is about. What is the essence of our calling? He says, I, uh, uh, um, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. What is the essence of our calling? We are called to the gospel. I want you to consider, first of all, the power, excuse me, the, the, the message uh, of the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel, the important thing to realize about the gospel of Christ is that it is a message. It's good news, not good advice. I'm sorry I got a little confused there with my notes for a moment, but I want you to think about the message of the gospel. The word gospel means good news, evangelion, good message. One thing that's critical to understand about Christianity is Christianity is not good teachings. It's not good advice. It's not about a good way of living. It's about good news. It's about something that happened. It's not about you. It's about God and what something that God did. Every other religion gives you lots of good advice. This is the way to act, and God will reward you. This is what you got to do, and it'll all work out. This is the way you ought to live. And too many Christians think that what we're trying to do is get good advice from God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's good news about something which has happened. It's not just good advice. How did you proclaim news before the advent of newspapers, before the advent of the Internet, before the advent of television and telephones? How did people get to know anything? They got to know everything through heralds, through announcers, through angelions, through angels. Don't think of angels, but rather messengers. So when the king was, when news had to be proclaimed, what they would do, they would send a messenger who would stand at the king and who would read the proclamation of the king. That's the only way to get it. You couldn't get it through a newspaper. You couldn't get it through a telephone. You couldn't get it through the internet. That's how news was spread. So what we have here is good news. What's that good news? It's good news about what God has done through Jesus Christ. Its form is good news, not good advice. There are a lot of people who are looking to come to church to get good news, excuse me, good advice. A lot of churches will think their whole job is to give lots of good advice. But you can get that from Oprah or Dr. Oz, right? You can get that lots of places. But what you can't get is good news. Good, you see, the, the Christian message is historically grounded in an event that if it's true, changes the world. And if it's false, makes us liars. The Bible teaches that. It's an event that God came into the world through Christ and that Christ gave his life for us so that we could be forgiven for our sins. You see, it's good news about something which has happened. So that's his form. Secondly, it's content. Through Jesus' death, death and resurrection, God has brought forgiveness and hope to the human race. You see, what you first of all is this. In fact, when we talk about preaching, I don't even like to use the word preaching because it sounds bad, but the Bible word is actually preaching. What does a preacher do but proclaim? What does he do? He doesn't teach how to make your life better. He proclaims the word of God, the message of God. So the essence of our calling is in is the gospel. Its content is that through Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection, uh, the, through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has brought forgiveness and hope 
to the human race. That's why he's speaking here about God, uh, called to be an apostle, which he promised before him concerning his son who was descended from David and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to Jesus Christ. We have this message about the gospel. So think, first of all, about the message of the gospel. There is a proclamation that happens when you come that God is king over the earth, that Jesus has come as God in the flesh, that Jesus gave his life for us, and that your life revolves around that. You see, that's the form of the gospel and its content. Well, what about, secondly, the the, the power of the gospel? The power of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is what brings healing and wholeness to our lives. It is the good news of what Christ has done, that as we respond to it, we are brought into new relationship with Christ. The power of the gospel is for salvation. It means we can be made new creations by trusting in Christ. We as a community, we gather to be reminded of the gospel. And we always invite you to respond to that good news by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, in the good news. Do you believe it? Will you place your faith in it? That's the gospel. But it's not just good for salvation. And this is very important to understand. I don't have, I'm, you can tell I'm, I'm rushing, but is it's also good for sanctification. In your life, you who are a follower of Jesus, you need to be reminded that you belong to Jesus in every component of your life. You need to be reminded that God has forgiven you. God has saved you. God has gifted you. God has put his spirit in you. God has made you into a beautiful work of art. God is doing something special in your life. You need to come back and back and back to this good news about Jesus. When you find yourself um, buying things you can't afford is because you don't believe the gospel that says you have everything you need in Christ. When you find yourself worrying too much about how you look and how you appear to other people, it's because you've been valuing the opinion of other people more than you've been valuing the opinion of God. It's all about the gospel. When you find yourself giving in to uh, behaviors which are harmful to people around you, it's because you become self-absorbed and you're looking to get rather than to give because you've not been willing to receive what God has given to you in Christ. We all need the gospel. I believe uh, that we are, uh, we are always in need of this good news, not just to get saved, but to be growing in our relationship with Christ. We need to be reminded of that. And then finally, on this point, the power of the gospel, excuse me, the urgency of the gospel. I am, he says there, I am eager, I am obligated, I am not ashamed. Our culture needs this good news about Jesus. And let me then go to the third point, which is how do we how do we respond to our calling? How are we to respond to our calling? Well, easily we respond in faith. We simply grab hold of that truth and place our trust in it. I've given you illustrations of this in the past, such as sitting in a chair, transferring your trust from yourself and your good deeds to earn God's favor, from yourself and, and your need to impress other people to be worthwhile yourself, and beginning to trust in Jesus and what he has done for you. We respond in faith. For it is the, the right, in the righteousness of God, righteousness 
in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so I want to ask you, will you respond in faith to what Jesus has done for you? Will you respond in faith? We're called to faith in the gospel of Christ. There are two quick practical expressions of how this will show itself in our church family. And the first is this. We always want to have a Christ-centered worship. All that we do should focus on Jesus and what he has done, that we can honor him and worship him together. We're called to worship Christ. And secondly, we want to have a gospel-centered preaching, a gospel-centered preaching, because I'm convinced that we need more and more and more to understand the truth of the gospel, not just to get people saved, so to speak, out there, but we who already are followers of Christ need continually to be reminded of his forgiveness, his presence, his power, his, the hope that he gives to us, to the mission that he calls us to, for we are called to faith in the gospel of Christ, gathered in love as the community of Christ, and sent with hope on the mission of Christ. Next week, we'll look at this second theme. What does it mean to be gathered in love as the community of Christ? But for this week, I just want to ask you, will you make sure that you respond in faith to what God has done? Father, we pray that you would just help us today as we gather so that we would be reminded that we are called to faith in the gospel of Christ. Oh, what great news it is that God became one of us, gave his life for us, offers us life as we trust in him. I pray, first of all, for those who might need to hear that message for the first time, that they would by faith place their trust in Christ. And then I pray also for those of us who need to hear it for the hundredth time. I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory we sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. I love to tell the story. Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.